Uh, Dr. Jeff Nolan, good morning. Um, you've just been over in the United States um, at a conference, Psychedelic Science 2017. That's right, yeah. 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 Fantastic experience, I have to say. I can only imagine that it would have been. Uh, it was in Oakland, um, California, yep. which is um, just across the uh, bridge from San Fran. It's that, the Bay Area. That's right. Yeah. In fact, I stayed in San. We stayed in San Fran, and I commuted uh, daily uh, uh, across to Oakland to the conference, which was really easy. Actually, they got quite a good public transport system in, in San Francisco and Oakland. Yeah. 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 So there's lessons to learn from from the conference, and lessons to learn about tra- public transport. These are things that we have problems with in New Zealand. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I don't know. I think our public transport's okay, but we oh, here yeah, we're all right. Yeah, we're okay here. Yeah. 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 I was in Auckland not that long ago. I was lost. Is that right? Catch a bus. It was. Yeah. Uh, it was unbelievably difficult. Yeah, yeah, no, well, it's, it's not too bad, and I have to say San Francisco is pretty good. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, right, um, so just tell us about the conference. We'll start off talking about the conference. Um, what was the conference? What's it all about? What's what's the outcome? Okay, the Psychedelic Science Conference um, is, a, is a conference that's actually been going on for a number of years now. Uh, it's set up and organised by an organisation called MAPS, mm-hmm. which glories in the name of the uh, Multidiscipli- Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies, uh, which was originally founded by a guy called Rick Doblin who's the uh, the CEO of MAPS and, and uh, as the name suggests their brief or process is to um, explore the use of psychedelics for a range of reasons but, but particularly focusing on uh, their benefits uh, which are medicinal benefits mm-hmm. uh, and, and that includes physical psychological benefits and uh, you probably could argue as well spiritual benefits so that's that's basically the brief of maps and their conference is, is, is I guess their I'm not sure whether it's annual or biannual but uh, their conference is basically the opportunity where they pull together all the people who are interested in this uh, area of research from around the world and, and uh, then uh, <laughs> People gather and, and uh, share their, as with any other conference, academic conference, uh, share their views, and, and uh, it's an opportunity to meet people and, and to um, you know describe one's own work and also find out about new stuff. Mm-hmm. What attracted you to uh, psychedelic sciences? Right. Well, uh, I um, I'm an anthropologist uh, by training, mm-hmm. and I have an interest. I did my PhD here at Otago University, finished it a few years ago, like 2007 or eight or somewhere around there, and, and my focus at the time was on cannabis use as mm-hmm. a as a cultural practice uh, and I, I didn't at the time I didn't really have that much of a focus on medicinal stuff you know yeah. I, I just I just wanted to get away because you know we, we always characterize cannabis use as, as a you know the, the catch cry these days is it's it's, it's not a, a legal problem it's a health problem yeah, you know, whereas, yeah. I mean I, I, I actually don't like that you know for me it's it's a cultural practice and uh, anybody who listens to any of the great shows on, on Radio 1 you know you've got the Abe show on Friday night and, and uh, we've got the shows on the weekend so on as well you know if you just even listen to the music and you hear what people are talking about I mean people you know they've got all these views about cannabis as an example I mean you don't hear mm-hmm. people talking about alcohol like that so 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 there's there's something going on there was always something going on there for me for for with regard to cannabis um, and and so I've kind of made uh, I suppose it's it's my uh, career I guess as, as a researcher is to explore the use of drugs as a cultural practice and and um, you know you get involved in that area and, and uh, you find yourself uh, being drawn to other uh, activities or other other research involving other substances and so on and, and including networks of people who are doing the same sort of thing and so 
that's uh, the you know the broad reason I suppose and more specifically I recently um, was involved over the last few years with a project that was sponsored by MAPS mm-hmm. uh, and also uh, sponsored out of New Zealand as well originally by Matt Bowden actually the uh, guy who uh, is uh, you know they talk about him being the, the godfather of, yeah. of uh, the legal high industry Starboy Starboy yeah, <laughs> yeah he's actually I mean Matt, Matt's a really interesting character and I, I actually have a you know great deal of respect for Matt I mean he's, he's I think a bit misrepresented in some ways and maybe there's been a bit of naivety on his part as well in terms of how those processes that he's been involved with have unfolded but mm-hmm. aside from all that stuff um, a few years, years ago about 2012 Matt uh, provided a small amount of funds uh, for a study into a, a substance called Ibogaine um, mm-hmm. which uh, we might want to talk about a bit as, as a, a yeah. powerful psychotropic uh, drug a plant-based medicine <laughs> Uh, and potentially a, a single treatment with ibogaine can um, uh, facilitate the reduction and even the ceasing of opioid dependence. Yeah. Uh, which is, a, you know, this is a claim that's made, and, and there's a lot of anecdotal evidence about that. But uh, uh, for a, a set of uh, rather interesting reasons, in New Zealand, ibogaine is available on prescription through your general practitioner, which is the only place in the world where that uh, situation prevails. Yeah. Uh, and as a consequence of that law occurring, or that, the gazetting of ibogaine in 2012, um, Matt put up some money, we, that went through to MAPS, uh, and that was used to fund a New Zealand study and a sister study based in Mexico. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so we've been doing that for the last few years. We wrapped that up earlier this year with a publication. Uh, and, uh, you know, so that drew us into the MAPS world as well. And, yep. and uh, with the end of that project and the conference in 2017 just uh, finished in, at the end of uh, April, early May, uh, we decided, I uh, decided to head off to this uh, conference and to share that information and also to uh, meet all the folks over there who are doing what they're doing. Mm-hmm. And how did it go down? And um, so, and also, I began at. So it gets rid of the cravings, is that right? Ibogaine is really quite a complicated substance. Yeah, um, it's, it's a lot of, yeah, yeah, it's it's complicated, <laughs> isn't that what we say? Yeah, um, yeah, it's an interesting one. Uh, it does is a couple of things. So you've you've it, when you take a drug. Um, that's, the, that, that's the parent drug, that's ibogaine or, or say cannabis or THC and then that goes in the body and the liver acts on it and the liver creates a kind of a copy of that drug yeah. that, you know, metabolises that drug and so in the case of cannabis you have nor tetrahydrocannabol in the case of ibogaine you have nor ibogaine so it just changes it a little bit and so with ibogaine the parent drug ibogaine promotes a powerful psychotropic experience, which is not the same as, uh, say, an LSD experience. You know, you've got all the lights flashing and everything, mm-hmm. so I'm told, uh, <laughs> <laughs> and that sort of stuff. Ibogaine, by all accounts, I've, I've not uh, experienced ibogaine myself, even though I've been offered it. Um, but by all accounts, it's, it's, one goes into a real uh, sort of a dream-like state, uh, particularly when one's eyes are closed, and um, and that 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 experience which may not necessarily be that pleasant you know you, you, you've got to be lying down and quiet and you can, yeah. you can easily fall over and hurt yourself and you might have diarrhea or be vomiting or whatever so it's not actually a very pleasant experience necessarily and it can be very challenging in terms of the visions one sees but one one has these visions which last for a period of time can be anywhere from a very short time just a couple of hours to, to you know quite a long time many mm-hmm. hours um, and then the noribogaine, the, the ibogaine is converted to, to noribogaine, that seems to reduce cravings and withdrawals, particularly with opioid dependence. And, and that's very important for people who, who have um, a dependence on opioids, and particularly in New Zealand where the number one opioid used is, is actually methadone. 
That's, yeah. that's the number one drug that people inject in New Zealand from the information we have from needle exchange program in terms of what, what people report uh, having injected uh, previously. Uh, and so the withdrawals from, from methadone uh, can be very unpleasant and, and last a very long time. And so that's a real disincentive. To, mm-hmm. to actually try and detox and then maybe you know engage with the reasons why you might be using in the first place. Uh, and so a drug like Ibogaine, or in this case specifically Ibogaine, that reduces those cravings, reduces those withdrawals, puts you in a really good space. It gives you a window of opportunity then to address other issues. And, and uh, that seems to be the case, and we followed that with a number of people treated in New Zealand over a period of time. And um, at the end of the 12-month period, which is actually quite a long period to follow people in an opioid uh, dependence context, context and, yeah. and post-treatment, um, we found that uh, 50% of the people that had been treated uh, were opioid-free at 12 months, which was a remarkable thing. Yeah, yeah. and what, what is the level of um, reduced opiate dependence um, with methadone? What's the success Well, rate? Well, the thing with methadone is, is, is that you're not reducing dependence at all. You're, you're becoming dependent on methadone. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah, yeah. And so that's, that's the thing, is, is, is methadone, um, it's certainly... A, a useful tool, I think. I, I, I probably had a more positive attitude about methadone previously than I do now, but certainly if a person's um, using opioids, uh, it's injecting, and, and a person's life is very chaotic and, and they're having a lot of issues with, with their, their physical health or the law or anything like that, that you know, going on a methadone program can, can stabilise a person and uh, the mortality rate for people who are, are injecting in New Zealand uh, who aren't on a methadone program is 10 times the rate of the general population. So you're 10 times more likely to die. Uh, if you go on the That's methadone huge. program, that reduces by 50%. But yeah. you're still five times more likely and you're still dependent, except this time you're dependent on methadone. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, you know, they're quite different responses to the problem of opioid dependence. Yeah. Why, why would you want to go on methadone too? If, if you're a user um, of, of opiates, uh, well, especially if it's something like um, heroin or morphine, you're probably going to know some other people that are as well, and yeah. you're probably going to know some people that are on the methadone program. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, and, I, and as I say, I, I think the thing, it, it, it's, it's difficult. I mean, I remember interviewing people for the needle exchange program for whom I also work. Uh, I interviewed people on the West Coast one time and, and uh, we were talking about their involvement in method, with the methadone program and, and there were a couple of people who said, oh God, you know, I almost feel like I'm a total loser even as a, as a junkie. I, that's not a term that I use, that was the phrase they used. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I can't even do that on the street, I have to go and join the methadone program. So some people maybe feel... Uh, you know that, that they don't really want to do that, but they found themselves there. But I think other people, you know, who are, who are opioid dependent, um, you know, come to perhaps come to a point in their lives where they, they they actually want to try and do something about their situation, or they they feel they must. Mm-hmm. Um, and certainly the methadone program. Well, I know that for example the New Ze- the Dunedin uh, uh, program, CADS Community Alcohol and Drug Service, have got a very open door policy and are very encouraging and very supportive of people to come and um, get on the program there. And so that's you know, that's, we're very fortunate here. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, as I say, I think you'd see that people who do get involved in the program, a lot of people, it stabilises their lives and probably moves them towards a point where maybe they want to maybe change how they're living their lives. Yeah. And, and of course, as we, it's very important to appreciate also that people don't just roll out of bed in the morning and decide they're going to become dependent on drugs. You know, there's a lot yeah. of stuff that's gone down in a person's life that's got them to that point, and, and it's often forgotten. As, and, and people who are drug-dependent, whether it's opioids or other drugs, uh, are often are very stigmatised people, and, and often there's a lot of stuff that's happened in their lives that have gotten to that point. Yeah. Now, um, of course, in America, opioid uh, addiction is huge. 
right now mm. um, you know you had the drug companies um, pushing it quite hard uh, yeah. in the 90s mm. uh, and opioids have uh, especially um, geez I always forget their names oh, uh, Oxycontin, uh, Oxycontin. Oxycontin. they become the, the, the Valium of of, of, oh, uh, of the now it's yeah. like the, you know the housewives in the 50s were all, all, all on the Valium and now yeah. you know you, you, it could be the high school principal like, it's, it's, it's crazy massive. it's yeah. huge yeah, yeah, it's, yeah. And, and, so what is you know have you had any kind of reaction from um, the FDA or or anyone like that to your research. I know it's not that long uh, wrapped up, but well, ibogaine has got got something of a history of research. It was it was a, it's a plant-based medicine um, that's used in West Africa and the Gabon, uh, in particular by by various people there. The Bwiti are a, a, a cultural group um, who and, and a kind of a religious or, or, or cultic group, I suppose, who use ibogaine uh, ritually. Uh, and it had a history in the early 20th century. There was, the French made a, a substance, a product called lambarine, which was used as, as, a, as a stimulant and, and, and so on. Uh, but it wasn't until the 60s when um, a guy, a young heroin dependent guy living in, in New York called Howard Lotsov, um, someone gave him some, said, oh, I'll try this. And he had it, and, and um, you know, three days later he's going, oh, gee, I don't feel like using heroin anymore. Yeah. So he, that was really the, the, the start point. You know, that's what that's coming up to what sort of fifty over fifty years ago now, where um, he had been pushing from that point on to say, well, look, hey, we've got to do something with this substance. And so there's been a whole, it's been quite a bit of research, and there was an attempt. Um, I think ibogaine got up to about second phase trials with the FDA in the states in the in the. Uh, 80s maybe, mm-hmm. and um, late 80s, and then there was a bit of an argument with, with between the researchers and Howard Lotsoff, that, that young fellow. He was part of that process as well, and he'd patented some things and so on. So, so it kind of got pushed offshore to St Kitts in the Caribbean, and there was some work done there by a, um, a woman by the name of Deborah Mash, who was a, a very uh, determined uh, researcher as well, and, and they had some very good results. But the main issue, as with so many of these substances and the other substances too that are, uh, were, were the subject of the conference, was that one of the things that people get really anxious about is this is the psychotropic effect, the mind-altering effects of them. Yeah. And that's, that's one of the things that really stands in the way of the development of these substances as medicines, although with Ibogaine also, it has to be said, um, that there have been a number of fatalities associated yeah. with its treatment. And in fact, there was one that happened in New Zealand in the North Island, and that, that person was potentially going to be part of our study. Uh, and so that with Ibogaine is, is, the, is probably the deal-breaker for Ibogaine, even more than the fact that it's a powerful psychotropic drug, is that if it's not managed properly, you know, you're going to run into difficulties there. So, mm-hmm. so that, those are reasons that, that hold back the, the use of these substances in treatment. Ibogaine particularly for that, that mortality, but the other ones in general, because, you know, people get very nervous about altering consciousness. I mean, you're allowed to go down to the supermarket and, and uh, you know, you can buy as much booze as you want. But, yeah, yeah. But hey, don't, let's not have anything else. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But, and it, but that's totally true. And I, I would assume, well, I don't know so much about New Zealand, but in, in the United States when it comes to uh, things like this, you've got massive uh, lobby groups and, uh, that block this kind of stuff. You've, you know, you've got large religious organisations that see this as. A I, I think, I think, yeah, the religious guys possibly, but the ones that really probably block it are the pharmaceutical yeah. companies because it's about, you know, those guys exist to make money. You know, yeah. let's, let's not kid ourselves about that. And when you're talking about treatments, this is one of the reasons why I, I guess the conference is, is focusing on these substances and 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 saying, well, look, we really need to think of that about these is because a lot of them involve the 
administration of substances that you don't have to keep administering. Mm-hmm. You know, and there's a big difference. I mean, you make a drug as a, as a pharmaceutical company, and um, you know, you know that people are going to have to keep using that for years and years and years. That's actually great because yeah. you're going to make lots of money. Yeah. But if you've got a drug that people only have to have to use once or a few times, and, and frequently one of the, the, the comments that's made about a number of these substances, these psychotropic substances that are used in the treatment of things like, for example, post-traumatic stress disorder is a big one, um, depression, anxiety, uh, drug dependence, um, is, is that because of those underlying factors that have got people into those situations in the first place, the psychological uh, factors, um, the use of these drugs combined with therapy is, is like you know having 10 years of therapy in an hour yeah. or, or in a few weeks. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so the, the drug companies don't really want to hear that because, no, 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 we want you to have 10 years of therapy because we want you to be using our drugs for 10 years. Yeah, yeah. yeah and, and like we said, the, the company that makes um, oxycodone and stuff like that, I mean, they've... Um some of the documentaries I've watched, they, they just don't give a fuck. Oh, well, I mean, the whole, the American thing is, is, it's quite a crazy place. I mean, America's got a population of, I think, 350 million, somewhere around there, and they apparently consume about a third of the world's pharmaceutical drugs, which yeah. I, I just find bizarre. But, you know, it's very easy in the States, apparently, to go to a doctor and to say, oh, look, I've got this problem, and they will prescribe these things. And, and in fact, I remember looking at a, I was, we were coming in the airport on the way back or whatever, and there was a TV new advertising, and, and there was a guy who had a back injury, he's a construction guy's got a back injury um, and he's been using opioids for years but he's constipated also oh, we've got another drug that you can have for that yeah, yeah. you know so so I mean we and, and I mean the we never see I mean I, I don't watch TV myself but I, I don't believe we'd ever see anybody advertising um, these uh, powerful drugs no. on television you know but but the Americans do and, and it's a, it's a massive thing and as we were saying before we started talking on air you know in the States in the last few years Four times the number of people who die from street heroin overdoses are dying from the uh, overdosing from prescription drugs. And there's like about 30 people a day in the States are dying from prescription opioid overdose. Yeah, yeah. And and now it's kind of, um, and because it's a lot of, um, you know, cis white people. Mm. The government's starting to take a little bit of notice as well, which is yeah. kind of sad. Yeah, well, it is. It's, it, you're, no, you're absolutely right, Jamie. Um, this whole thing of all these, well, you know, these young, um, you know, young, you know, white people coming from this 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 nice leafy suburb sort of thing, you know, on my child, my child's got this. Oh, this is terrible. We've got yeah. to do something about it. You know, forget about all the guys living in the in the in the ghettos and in the in the in the hardcore environments and in, in the cities. You know, young Afro-American people. You know, forget about those guys. We just worry about the little white guys. You know. Yeah. Yeah. So, w- what are the hopes for this study? Like, like you said, I mean, uh, it's got a um, from from, for the, from your study, the outcome um, on terms of addicts, the success rate is, is pretty good. Well, it is. Um, I, I think it, you have to say that it, you couldn't generalise bec- yeah. because it, this was not a random sample of people. It was a people who self-selected to be treated in the first place. It wasn't a trial. Like we didn't go out and find a bunch of people and say, "Oh, hey, would you like to try this?" They, these yeah. were people who had identified they had a problem uh, with opioid drugs. Uh, and had found uh, there was a couple of people, uh, young women, uh, treating people in Dunedin. Dunedin's a real hotbed, actually, of ibogaine research and, and practice, I have to say. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, they um, uh, were treating people, um, and and that's 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 good. But 
those people were not randomly selected, and, and so you can't generalise out yeah. into the general population. Um, having said that, you know, 50% success rate for people who were appropriately treated is, is, a, is an amazing success rate for, for a condition which is a very difficult condition to treat. The thing is, though, you know, we've got the issue with the fatality that yeah. we've already discussed. Um, you've got the lack of knowledge about Ibogaine um, by general practitioners, whose job it is, is well, they'll be the people prescribing. And of course, you know, it sounds like a weird, crazy drug. And, um, you know, I've got my medical career and someone died. Um, why would I want to be doing this? Uh, and I don't know if I want you in my surgery as a drug dependent person anyway. Yeah, <laughs> so yeah, yeah. so there, there will be resistances to that. Um, I, I genuinely feel, though, that there's, there's possibilities here. Another person who's doing some very important research, and uh, in, in, again in Dunedin at the School of Medicine, is uh, Professor Paul, Paul Glue, um, who's head of the Department of the Psychological Medicine Department. And uh, he's done some very uh, significant research around the safety and dosing uh, of and the use of Ibogaine in, in, uh, because the particular issue that people have with Ibogaine when they take it is that it prolongs a certain part of their heartbeat as a consequence of which they get an arrhythmic heart and that's where the fatalities occur. Okay. And, and Paul's research has demonstrated that, that there's there certain processes in play there involving the metabolising of, of the drug, turning it from one thing into another as we discussed before. Yeah. And, and the possibility is that if you change the dosing regime, if you reduce the doses significantly and stretch out the period of treatment to a number of days, that maybe you can reduce or ameliorate some of those risks. And mm-hmm. so, I mean, I, I, I think there are possibilities in New Zealand as I said before it's it's unique in the world that it's it's on it's available on prescription as a non-approved drug so I think there are problems I mean the drug the opioid dependence issue in New Zealand is it's it's not of the magnitude of the states perhaps but it's still there and, and in Oceania we're probably a bit higher we maybe point zero three to point zero six of the population so you're looking somewhere between you know ten and twenty thousand people are opioid dependent in New Zealand probably um, there's about five thousand people on the methadone program a bit more than that yeah uh, one of the people in our study <laughs> had been on methadone for 27 years Wow 27 wow. years you know, now that's okay if you're just thinking about the money. That's five grand a year, so that you can do the maths. That's about 100, 140,000 over that period of time. Yeah. But of course, and that particular person was not using other drugs. They'd moved away from that that other drug lifestyle. But a lot of people on methadone are still injecting. Yeah. Uh, and so every time you inject, you're at risk of overdose. You're at risk of contracting a bloodborne virus, like mm-hmm. particularly hepatitis C. And for people who who read uh, papers or stuff or whatever, they'll see that uh, Martin Phillips uh, was, over the weekend was just saying that he's be he's managed to be put onto this new drug Havani, which is uh, mm-hmm. one of these new direct acting antivirals, and that's cured his hepatitis C. And that, that's that's fantastic. But hey, that was a hundred thousand dollars. Yeah. Yeah. So, so you've got all these people who are potentially exposing themselves to conditions which are life-threatening, but which also draw heavily upon the resources of the health system. Uh, and so if you can give someone a treatment that actually stops them doing something that's going to put them in the way of that harm, then, you know, there's a whole range of possibilities here, I think, Jamie, yeah. yeah. Well, I, and I guess that will come down to, like, I mean, if a drug company does, you know, if they get the doses right, they do some uh, trials, and then a drug company does come out with the product, it could be at that cost as well, because, you know, if it's a small, um, you know, small program of, of, of taking the drug, like it is with the one that Martin took, well, I think it was a 10-week program or it's something. A, yeah, like I think that. between 6 and 12 weeks, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and, yeah. and, and that's the point why it costs so much. Mm.
because it's well, yeah, but that, and the research. I have to say, I went to a great uh, um, conference um, uh, late last year in, in Australia, and, and uh, sounds like that's all I do, but it's not. Uh, <laughs> and uh, there was a guy there um, from the UK, and he was talking about the real cost of drugs, and and he said, look, you know, these drugs cost us much. But he said, if you there's a there's a like a a, whole, a chemical wholesaler. There's these guys in India, and you you can actually get all the different chemicals that are in these drugs. What do they cost? And he breaks it all down, and he, and, and and you know it's it's costing very little actually. Yeah. The markup these guys put on is massive. Um, he was saying, for example, even in the UK, they could save something like thirty five million pounds on their paracetamol bill by sourcing it from this place. I mean, it, it's that cheap. To, to make a lot of these drugs and so a lot of that is these guys wanting to these drug companies wanting to recoup their R&D costs and keeping these drugs really high so mm -hmm. they're kind of in a way almost holding people to ransom in a way uh, and this is why for example if you're thinking about the drug that, that Martin had for his, um, his hepatitis which was apparently very successful you've got uh, other people who are involved in this thing like the buyers club yeah, yeah, and so yeah. they're going so that, that $100 or $70,000 drug that Martin had you can pick up as a generic drug through India imported into Australia for about $3,000 yeah, yeah. So, so you've got that side of it as well but the original yeah. one's still on patent in Australia, I assume. So yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So this is these are generic copies that are, yeah. that are coming out of India, and of course, you know, some people will say, "Oh, gee, you know, is it any good and does it work?" But we know also that um, in in Dunedin, for example, um, the people who are working in the in the treatment of the of of, of people with hepatitis C here. Uh, that the clinicians are actually prepared to treat people with the drugs that they've actually brought in from Australia because they've seen them working as well. Yeah, that's fantastic. So do you do you think there's a future for Ibogaine in New Zealand and, and, and the States? I, I think there's not only a future for... I don't know about the States. They're going to struggle a bit with it, I think. I think there's a future for it in New Zealand. I actually think also that there's a future for many of these other substances as well. So we're talking about LSD, yeah. MDMA, psilocybin from mushrooms and so mm -hmm, on, are just mm -hmm. three, ayahuasca, which is another one that's from a, a vine that comes from the Amazon jungle. Um, Some of the ones got a bad name too, though, right? Well, a little bit of a bad name, yes. Probably not quite as bad as, as Ibogaine in terms of the fatality stuff. But, I mean, some of these other substances, and this is another thing, you know, some of the psychedelics uh, and drugs like, like MDMA, it's actually very difficult to become dependent on them yeah. just because of how they work on the brain. Mm -hmm. So the, the, the reasons that we might be concerned about the use of drugs uh, in treatment in terms of their potential for abuse using that term technically which is like you know oh, you're going to become dependent on it it's just going to be this thing you keep on doing those reasons aren't necessarily there for some of the that these psychedelics yeah yeah so I mean but we, we've got to get that across to the to the powers that be well yeah I mean I don't know I think if you drew a list of people up that you would not want to be involved in making decisions about this you know, <laughs> forget about the religious guys the guys at the top of the list of the politicians <laughs> yeah. are, you know because they, they're the guys who are just thinking oh it's an election year I don't want to say anything yeah that's right you know that's so right. So that's the problem we're facing is we, we, I think we need to engage more fully with this uh, phenomenon of the use of these substances uh, and, you know, how do we do that? It's, that's, that's, that's the really tricky one. I mean, we're struggling enough with medicinal cannabis as it is, you yeah, know, let, yeah. let alone some of these other ones. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, because I know, like you said, there's some great work being done at the hospital with ketamine and obviously the same goes Exactly. That, that, again, it? ketamine is another one, yeah, yeah, and, yeah. And, and a powerful uh, psychedelic, a very powerful psychedelic. Mm -hmm. my, my own experience tells me that.
that, uh, you know, um, but uh, um, at the same time, significant medicinal value and some great work being done again by Paul Glue and his colleagues as well. Yeah, yeah I mean, uh, Switzerland's been doing stuff with the MDMA for a while yep. and they're getting really good results as yep. well. Yep. Um, MAPS actually, uh, that the organisation I was discussing uh, earlier in relation to, to their conference, they have just received approval to do their phase three trials with MDMA for, for uh, post-traumatic stress disorder. Wow. And I, I think another thing that's driving the interest overseas, Jamie, and particularly in the States, is you're getting all these guys coming back from these various wars that the Americans are perpetrating around the planet, um, young people coming back as soldiers, uh, and they're terribly traumatised. You know, they yeah. oh, I'm going to sign up for this, I'm going to go and do this, and then all of a sudden it's this terrible thing that they've been exposed to. They're coming back, they've got PTSD, it's a very difficult thing to treat, and the Americans actually starting to look for other solutions because the solutions they've currently got don't work. Yeah. And so they're finding these other solutions and we're seeing some very solid science backing the research for these substances. It's not just a bunch of guys with tie-dyed t-shirts running around saying, hey man, have this. You know, it's yeah. just, These are hardcore clini clinicians and scientists and biochemists and pharma, uh, you know, people involved in pharmacology and so on. They're doing very solid work. They're doing amazing work with brain imaging stuff, giving people these substances and seeing how it works on their brains and combining with music, for example. There was a fascinating talk at the conference about the combining of drug therapy with certain types of music. And, yeah, and they were wow. seeing powerful changes in people people's minds yeah well wow, it's amazing uh, well we're going to have to leave it there Jeff um, thank you so much for coming in my pleasure yeah it's been uh, it's been great to have you on here especially as as, as, as an avid listener okay. absolutely yeah yeah um, alright brilliant um, good luck with um, what's coming up next for you um, I think we're going to try and um, uh, maybe develop the Ibogaine uh, process a bit further. Um, maybe we need to look at some national guidelines for treatment in New Zealand, pull in a few uh, various experts, people like Paul Glue and so on, and see if we can get uh, some, some guidelines to make it a safer process and see if we can get some more buy-in from the powers of be. Brilliant. All right. Once again, uh, Jeff, thank you so much for coming in. It is uh, it's time to go. That's the end of the show. Uh, thank you.